welcome back to The Foreign Desk. I'm Lisa Daftari here with our first episode of the new year. Happy New Year. Happy 2023. A new year, new background, as you can see, our new backdrop. Um, but the same old problem. So much going on around the world as we bring you the headlines here at the Foreign Desk and break them down. In Iran, protests rage on for the fourth consecutive month as Iran's regime continues with its execution of prominent protesters and rounding up some of the most influential figures who are showing support for the people's movement. And in Ukraine, the war is in its 11th month with U.S. involvement growing this week as the Biden administration has now invited Ukrainian troops uh, to the U.S. for military training. And here with us is someone who has had a front row seat to all of this, Baroness Catherine Ashton, who served as the European Union's first high representative for foreign affairs and security policy from 2009 to 14. She led the P5 plus one talks on Iran's nuclear program, which led to the signing of the JCPOA. And she led the agreement between Serbia and Kosovo. Uh, previously, Baroness Ashton served as the first woman commissioner for trade in the European Commission, first woman British European commissioner, also a former nominee for the Nobel Peace Prize. She's also due to have her first book released February 23rd titled, And Then What? Inside Stories of 21st Century Diplomacy. Welcome to the program. And she has, has asked me to call her Kathy, which is very difficult for me not to give her her full respected title, but I will say welcome to the show, Kathy. Thank you, Lisa. It's lovely to be here with you. You know, um, I want to start with your book, um, I had a chance to uh, get a, a, a uh, advanced copy, and I thank you very much for sending that over. Um, intriguing experiences you have had truly at, at the front of, of so many of the um, world's greatest crises that are still continuing to today. Uh, you left your position in 2014, but almost a decade later are releasing your book. What prompted you to release the book and why now? Sorry, so. You know, when I looked back on that period of time, I'd got these stories that uh, my husband had actually got me to talk about at the time. So it's a contemporary telling of what it was like to be there, what it was like to be dealing with some of these issues. And when I thought about where we got to, first of all, as you rightly say, so many of the issues are not resolved. But also in telling the stories to people, you know, people would say to me, you should write these down, but you should write these down with a view to talking around some of the things that you learned when you were trying to grapple with these issues, some of the ways in which diplomacy remains such an important element in trying to resolve crises, trying to stop problems becoming crises, and also to give some ideas for how you think we should be tackling problems in the future. So I hope the book it's both an opportunity for people to see what it's like to be in the room and to understand what diplomacy and foreign policy looks like from an ordinary person just being engaged in those different issues, but also to get a sense of how we tackle them then, what we need to do in the future. You know, um, a lot of, I want to get a little deeper into um, some of the parts of your book. A lot of our coverage right now, obviously focused on the Iran protests, and it was interesting to read in your book that when you uh, came into your position, you admitted you didn't know much about Iran, but by the time you were done, it became obviously the center of your work uh, and, and that you spent, I, I, I found this interesting, you spent more time with the Iranian leaders than you did your own family, um, which just shows the depth at which you were involved uh, in the Iran, um, the, the talks leading up to the uh, Iran nuclear deal. Um, 
you know, right now we're watching some of the, the, the most brutal uh, moments of the 43-year run this Iran regime has had. Um, perhaps some would say they're showing their true colors. Um, you know, you, you dealt with these, these, these people. Um, you know, what was it like? I mean, watching, I mean, juxtapose that for us, you know, watching right now, this young people's movement led by women who are out on the streets and then thinking back to a time where you sat across the table many times from the brutal leaders who are now killing these young people. Well, I dealt with two different groups, the Ahmadinejad group and then the Rahani group. These were the people who were working on the negotiations. And I would say that the situation then, particularly with Rahani's regime, was not quite the same as it is now. That's not to suggest that it was in any way benign. But what we've seen is, over these last years, uh, Iran become more determined as a regime to have its way. And people in Iran, I think, showing their determination to want to look for a different, a better approach, a better life, if you like. Sitting across people in negotiations, well, by definition, you're not sitting across with your friends. In any negotiation, you are always going to be dealing with people who you have at least, let's say, a problem with. And often they're people who you, you wouldn't ever wish to come across in ordinary life. There are people that you wouldn't deal with in ordinary life. But if you're going to get diplomacy to work, if you're going to get negotiation to work, that's what you do. You sit down and you work through the issues and you try and work through them in the context of recognising that there are human beings in the room with you. You have to try and deal with them as people who you're trying to express your points of view, you're trying to get what you need from it. But to an extent, you have to at least listen to what it is they're trying to tell you about the position they come from. Yeah, but I guess the question now is how many chances does the Iran regime get, right? With all due respect, I mean, for 43 years, of course, the, uh, the, the, the leaders in charge have been bad or worse. We've never had, you know, even a Rouhani, many call him a wolf in sheep's clothing because he promised yeah. so many reforms, especially economic ones, never delivered on them. There have been executions for 43 years, starting in 79 up to today. So it's never been great. They've never been respectful of human rights and particularly the rights of women. So in 2014, you had a run-in um, with that exact issue. Uh, there were headlines as you were harshly criticized by Iran's hardliners, the same people you negotiated, uh, you sat in, in negotiations with just a year prior. Um, they were upset that you met with a handful of Iranian women uh, human rights activists uh, in celebration of Women's International, International Women's Day. Um, and there were actual official complaints launched against you by these hardliners for su supporting human rights, indicating that they don't support human rights, right? So what was it like at that moment? Did you want to sound the alarm? Did you think to yourself, oh my God, I sat with the wrong people. Uh, I just negotiated a deal or sat across the table trying to use diplomacy against people who are against women, are against human rights, and they're upset at me for sitting with just a handful of human rights activists. So, you know, again, back to my point about negotiations, that you are often dealing with people who you have nothing in common with, who you would not want to be with in many circumstances. But... It's also important to recognise that in a negotiation, in my opinion, one of the very first things you have to do 
is decide what it is you're trying to achieve and stick to it. You know, there were many, many issues in discussions with many countries across the world where there are lots of things that you want to get onto, issues that you want to talk about, concerns that you have. Um, and as you'll know, I spent a lot of time talking about human rights issues. The nuclear negotiations were about a very specific thing, trying to ensure that Iran's nuclear program was peaceful. Mm -hmm. And that was the core of what we were trying to do. I, I describe it, I think, as the boulder in the doorway. You know, mm -hmm. there were many, many issues that you want to discuss with Iran, not least human rights. But if you can't deal with something that is such an immediate threat, so important, then you can't, you have to kind of get that boulder out of the doorway in order that you can have those conversations. And it's always very complicated, Lisa, because understandably people say, well, why don't you also do human rights issues? Why don't you add those into the equation? Why don't you raise those in the talks? But if you're trying to get one issue resolved, You've really got to stick to that issue in the hope right. that you can then move on and talk about the other issues. But that that main issue was not resolved, right? So I, I, one of the most um, colorful uh, moments that you describe in your book, and um, it was very it was interesting for me. I felt I felt like I was transplanted to sit at that table in Vienna. Uh, you talked about how um, you know Zarif comes up with a PowerPoint presentation. And the first page of his presentation is basically something like, and I, and I have it written down here, um, you know, we're not looking, um, what it says, you know, we're not looking for, or Iran does not want or need nuclear weapons. I mean, given the fact that, you know, fast forward to today, we're north of 60%. It looks like they were less than honest with you uh, and all your cohorts in, in Vienna. Did you feel at the time that they were lying, that they wanted to just get get rid of at least superficially the boulder in the doorway in order to normalize relations? Or did you feel like they were going to be honest? So the, the point about the agreement, which was a good agreement, was that there was a huge amount of verification that went alongside it. The International Atomic Energy Authority, which as you know, is responsible for making sure that what is said to be done is actually done. They monitor, they verify. They use cameras and inspectors and all sorts of methods to try and make sure. So this was an agreement that was very much based on ensuring that what was said would be done was done. And how can all we the have, sorry to cut you off. I just how how can we make sure of that? How and 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 they didn't obviously, right? So let's jump to the to the punchline. They didn't. Well. At the point at which the agreement was signed and the agreement was implemented, the evidence from the IEA was that they did. They were sticking to the agreement. What happened next, as you know, was that America pulled out of the agreement. And at that point, the challenge was for the other countries who were part of it under the UN umbrella, but especially for the Europeans, was how to try and make the agreement stick. Then you had elections, you had a different government coming in, and as you rightly say, things have changed rather dramatically. Right. And I, I, I appreciated the part in the book where you 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 kind of said I, I had to rise up to the challenge in the beginning of, of, of taking on your position because the, the reason we went into the West wanted an Iran nuclear deal was because they were not being compliant. And then let's let's talk about today. 
you know, we still haven't been able to get that JCPOA. And 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 let's kind of move the 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 four months of of the people's protest aside. You know, the the West, you know, whether it was led by Robert Malley or the Europeans together um, separately, they have not been able to come back to the JCPOA. You know, obviously, they're saying that the Iran regime is demanding way too much. I mean, what has changed? What would you do differently? And do you still think that diplomacy is the way to go with this regime? So... I won't second guess what Rob Malley's been doing. He's a great guy, uh, Lisa. I worked with him when we were doing the agreement uh, originally. Things have changed because, as you rightly point out, Iran has moved forward with its nuclear program. There's a different government in place. The uh, expectations that Iran puts on, especially, I think, in terms of guaranteeing that if we do the deal again, we'll stick to it, from our perspective, we need more because their program has moved on. All of that, no question, has created the circumstances we find ourselves in where the agreement looks like a long way away, if it's ever possible. What I would say, though, because you asked me about diplomacy, is diplomacy is such an important part of how we try and resolve problems. It's not the only thing we do. There have been lots of sanctions on Iran. They continue to be there. There are lots of pressure points that we've put on in thinking about lots of crises across the world. There's lots of ways of tackling them or trying to tackle them. But you always need diplomacy. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to write the book, is to say, actually, diplomats do some amazing work. I met some extraordinary people who often very quietly and over a long period of time really worked hard at trying to tackle issues and find ways through that would get us to where we needed to get to in good order and as peaceful a way as possible. You know, um, Kathy, again, with all due respect, we look at, but now we look at the reasons we initially got into a nuclear deal with Iran's regime. And that was A, under the premise that they're not looking for a weapons program. And now they're showing us that they are. And secondly, that they would be compliant, which they haven't been. And then the human rights aspect, and I'm not saying that any diplomacy, and I, and, I, and I understand completely your position in that you don't, we don't lead our foreign policy on, on the basis of, of human rights and the human rights records, or else we would, we would have to kind of cut relations with many nations across the world. But when we do see this egregious behavior by Iran's regime in executing you know, peaceful protesters in the way that they are you know, shooting point blank at young women who are protesting at universities, doesn't that give us an indication that this is not the place to employ diplomacy, that diplomacy will only waste time and allow this regime to continue playing out the clock, continue spreading you know, uh, hate, whether it's at home or uh, funding terror groups and proxies in the region, uh, and continuing to, frankly, kick our butts, whether it's at the UN or any other place, or to uh, dupe the IAEA uh, and continue with its weapons program at the end of the day. So let me just answer that by starting with something you said about human rights. I think human rights is really important to be front and centre of what we do. As far as I'm concerned, for human rights to apply to anyone, you simply have to be human. There are no other criteria that apply. And it should be, for us, a guiding principle of everything that we try to do. It doesn't mean when I talk about trying to work on a framework of an agreement that somehow we've left our human rights issues at the door and ignored them. They're part of who we are, or they should be. 
And so they are still there and they're still very much an important part, not least, at least in the way that we conduct ourselves and the way that we try and deal with issues. So what I'm really trying to say is that in the kind of spectrum of things that we try and do to recognise the challenges that we face, to deal with regimes that behave in appalling ways, to try and tackle immediate problems that are a danger to us and a threat to us, you need to make sure that you have a strong diplomatic toolkit, diplomatic element to the work that you do. Because even when we find ourselves in areas of conflict, and you mentioned Ukraine, I'm sure you'll you'll want to come on to that, that you, you need to have a diplomatic capacity to deal with the problems as either they become resolved or to try and continue to find ways to do it as peacefully as possible. My book is called And Then What? Mm -hmm. Because one of the challenges is always to think, well, if we do this, and then what? Right. What happens next? Right. So So what happens next is often that you need to be able to find diplomatic means of dealing with the problems or the, if you like, the residual issues that apply. So it's, it's really important that we never see diplomacy as somehow either a soft option, I'm not saying you thought that for a minute, or something that we can dispense with. It's always, always going to be important that we find ways to use diplomatic methods. Right. And I and I, I appreciate the analogy you made in your book. You called it all a jigsaw puzzle. And that's exactly what the job that you were tasked with in order to fit these pieces together, including uh, perhaps human rights and and all of the other different behaviors and the toolkits that you speak about in terms of putting together some sort of approach in dealing with our enemies, such as the Iran regime. And I want to continue with the Iran regime. You know, how would you advise, you're saying Rob Malley should not give up on diplomacy, correct? So if he would, let's say, for example, continue on with uh, negotiations to get back into an Iran nuclear deal while the kids are being brutally murdered on the streets of Iran, and if we want to employ diplomacy and we want to talk about human rights, how will this look? Can Rob Malley come out and support regime change or support the movement in Iran, the revolution in Iran in a meaningful way, but yet also use diplomacy in order to negotiate with the regime of Iran? How would that even work? Well, it goes back to what I was saying before, and I'm not going to second guess what Rob Malley is doing and thinking, or indeed what the government in the US is thinking about how to go forward. But in a negotiation, and if you just, you know, whether it's with Iran or anyone else, when you're trying to tackle a particular issue, the focus of what you're doing has to be on doing what you said you would deal with. Now, in many circumstances, there are problems that you can see with your relationship with the country or things that are happening within the country that you dislike at best and find absolutely appalling at worst. And you look at the spectrum of things that you've got available to try and tackle them. So it may be that you take sanctions. It may be that you put pressure on. It may be that you put pressure on others to try and put pressure on what's happening. Lots of different things that you do. But you're also in the context of all of the issues, looking for areas that you can try and resolve in the best way possible. And all I'm really trying to say is that in the spectrum of issues that we have with Iran, and certainly in my time, remember it's, as you rightly say, it's a long time since I was dealing with this, 
but in the time that I was there, this was a really critical issue that we tried to resolve and did resolve diplomatically. And that issue could be resolved diplomatically then. It's a good question as to whether if you talk to the people now dealing with it, they would feel it could be resolved now. But even even in 2013, so more so in 2023, if the goal of you as 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 EU representative for foreign policy and security policy, or Rob Malley's position as envoy to Iran, or the Biden administration, the representatives of any country in Europe, Canada, etc., our goal is to keep our borders safe, if our goal is to dispense of, of global terrorism, if our goal is to curb Iran regime's behavior, isn't regime change the fastest way to that goal? Why not support regime change? Why didn't you do it then? And why aren't they doing it now? Well, you have to ask them how they want to develop their own policy now. That's not for me to say. What I would say in 2013 was that we were able to reach an agreement on the nuclear program. That was an important beginning in terms of trying to resolve some of the issues that we had. There will be people who thought that that was not enough, that there should be more in terms of uh, supporting changes. But um, in the context of what we were asked to do, that was the, the work that we did. And I think it's important to not try and sort of go back and say, well, we could have done this differently then in that context, because we were successful in reaching an agreement. And that's what we were trying to do. Well, successful, I think, would be a, a better, you know, in terms of longevity, right? You can't hold them back, you know, and then have a sunset clause and then, you know, wonder what. One of the most interesting developments during the last four months of this Iran uprising, I thought, was President Obama coming out and saying that he regrets not handling that the Green Revolution of 2009 differently, that he should have supported the people. Do you feel the same way? I think it's really interesting because when you go back to 2009 and the potential that we weren't sure existed, I mean, you know, the, the, uh, the, the challenges of trying to establish, and again, this is partly what made me write the book, of at the time trying to work out what's the best way to go forward mm-hmm. when you're looking across usually a whole range of different issues that you're dealing with at the same time, but trying to work out what's going on inside a country is much more complicated and much more complex than hindsight allows you to sort of look back on it. That's not to excuse it, but I think President Obama, it's an interesting comment, I've not heard that, but it's an interesting comment to look back and say, you know, if we'd been able to do things differently, maybe things would have been different. All I can tell you is when you're dealing with problems at the time, you are trying to look for ways in which you can try and resolve some of them. And trying to resolve them diplomatically is often an important part of what you do. Just saying, well, we support this or we support that doesn't get you very far. It's great rhetoric, but it doesn't actually get you very far. The important thing is to try and say, how do we get underneath this problem? Is there something we can do to try and solve it? Speaking of diplomacy, we're running out of time, so I definitely want to move on to Ukraine. Um, several attempts have been made to uh, use a, a diplomacy to kind of um, solve this conflict. Um, you know, I we're almost one year into this, right? I mean, who would have thought? We thought if, if anything, this would have been 
over much, much sooner. Um, if you were still in position, I mean, how would you bring an end to this? Is there, in fact, an off-ramp for Putin? Is there a way to handle this situation uh, to put an end to it sooner rather than later? It's really hard, Lisa, isn't it, to imagine a situation where there could be now negotiations of any kind with, with uh, Putin in the context of what he has done. And, and by the way, I, like more or less everyone else, look back a year, did not expect him to do what he did. I, I, I thought that he was going to try and consolidate his position in terms of the, the territory that he'd taken in the Donbass and, of course, with Crimea, I did not expect him to do what he sought to do. And I think that's true of most people. I'm sure there were people who did see the signs, but I'm not going to pretend that I expected this to happen. Now, where we are a year later, it's extremely difficult to see how this is going to go forward, except that we have to make sure that with the support we can give, that Ukraine is a free and whole country. That means able to make its own decisions. And one of the ways that... I've seen that, that Russia operates is what I call the wedge. I think I may say this in the book, but it's the kind of putting into a country a problem. Um, maybe it's a, a sort of semi-invasion, as we saw with Georgia, where the country doesn't have complete control over its own borders. And that means it's very difficult for that country to be able to join alliances or to be able to do things because it's A, focusing on trying to resolve that problem itself and B, other countries don't quite know where this nation now stands, what was happening, what's happening in those different areas. And we saw that with Ukraine. We've seen that since 2013-14, that he's trying to do that. So the first thing is going to be how do we make sure that it is free and whole how is it able to make its own decisions? And then, and, and this is going to be a long-term issue, and one of the things I'm really passionate is that we think long-term about how do we not just resolve problems, but make sure they stay resolved. It's going to be how to really make sure that Ukraine's borders are secure and that it's rebuilt as a nation after the terrible devastation that has happened. I mean, how do we approach Putin with something like that? I mean, what's what's the incentive for him to even back down now? Well, I think there are, it, it's very difficult to see quite how he's going to back down now. At the moment, it feels to me as if he is determined on doing whatever it is he finally decides is going to be the end game. Now, he's clearly not going to take the whole of Ukraine. That's never going to happen. The question is... Is he going to try and simply do what it what we mainly thought that he would do, which is consolidate what he's already got? And how does that, uh, in terms of preventing that happening, what do we need to do both militarily and other ways as well? It's incredibly difficult to see how negotiations could happen. What I would say, though, um, and I've said this in, in, to people in Ukraine, is you need to start thinking about what the process of negotiations will be, not to make a compromise. But when this war is over, there will be things to sort out. There will be things about security and borders and prisoner exchanges and uh, the repatriation of people who've gone that we know are missing from Ukraine that are in Russia and making sure we've got reparation in some form and making sure people are held to account as far as that's possible. So you need to think early about how that's gonna happen. Who's gonna be in the room? Where, where are we going to do that? Who's going to be the key partners? Because Ukraine won't be doing that alone. 
that need to be thinking about this. And although it sounds like doing that very early, the way that the conflicts spin out, the way that they end, you can get things happening quite abruptly. You can get changes taking place and you need to be ready. And it's back to my point about diplomacy, that even in the middle of a, of a crisis of this kind, we need to be thinking, well, okay, you need to get the people ready to start working out how this is going to be sorted out when we get to that point. Yeah, no easy task for sure. Uh, Catherine, I want to just wrap up the program by giving you an opportunity to give us almost a bird's eye view of your book. Um, like you you said, it's been it's been a while since you were in office, but um, you know the issues are still there, and if if not the same, perhaps worse in many cases. You know, also touch upon you know your position on on diplomacy, on tackling these issues. Have you evolved in in your positioning? How would you advise? people in the West who are in these positions of leadership that have to deal with threats like China and Russia and Iran's regime, how would you advise them and um, give us, you know, sort of a, of a summary of what people can expect in your book? So what I've tried to do is tell seven stories from the time that I was in office and take you with me, Lisa, because for most people, foreign policy and diplomacy are, are just words. They, they're not, they're not, everyday occurrences. So trying to allow people to come into the room with me, I have not changed what I wrote at the time. I've not tried to be clever by looking back and saying, well, if I just change this, it looks like I knew more about things. So you will find that it's about what I thought at the time and how we tried to do things at the time. Um, and then to draw some lessons from that. One of the lessons is you just have to think longer term. Crises bubble up. They often happen over decades. Why do we think we can solve them in six months or a year? Right. You have to be prepared to stay there for the long term and actually try and help resolve them. It's about trying to be clear about what you do. As I pointed out, stick to the thing that you're trying to achieve. It doesn't mean there's a lot, a lot more things to do, but at least if you can achieve one thing, there's a chance of being able to move forward. And it's about more than anything saying, on the spectrum of the freezer on the one hand and the oven with a cake that's nicely baked on the other, you're always trying to move relationships from the freezer to the oven. In other words, you're trying to make sure that you are constantly driving from a diplomatic point of view to engage and try and make things better. And especially when it comes to human rights, we should never be afraid to make it clear where we stand, to be prepared to be absolutely determined on supporting people, whoever they are and wherever they are in the world. It should be at the heart of what we do. I'm sure that people inside Iran and China and uh, many other places across the world are listening and very hopeful by your comments. Um, a lot of, of, of hard work and much uh, easier said than done diplomacy. Thank you so much. And of course, you can get the Baroness's book and then what inside stories of 21st century diplomacy available February 23rd. Thank you very much for your time, Kathy. Thank you, Lisa. And for those of you who would like to subscribe to our weekly show, please go to youtube.com slash Lisa Daftarian to sign up for our daily top 10 foreign policy email. Go to foreigndesknews.com. We'll see you all next week.